Let's pray and ask God to help us. Heavenly Father, do please help us to understand your word this morning. Help us to see our need for the Lord Jesus and help us to see what we can learn from Nehemiah as well. We plan in Jesus, pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I still remember the scene um, when I got home after a long day at work. It was a complete disaster area. The pillows from the couches were strewn all over the floor. There were tiny pieces of Lego spread from one end of the room to the other, as well as about a thousand other toys. There was texter written all over the walls and all over the childproof gates. There was donut squashed into various sections of the floor with a liberal sprinkling of crushed chips. A drink had been spilt in the corner of milk. There was a, a certain lady in tears in the corner of one, of one couch. <laughs> and boys jumping on the other couch with no cushions, jumping up and down, screaming and hitting each other. It was a picture of utter devastation. <clears throat> I have to say it was all too much for me. Um, I didn't think that I would ever be able to restore order. And it's not like I got much cooperation from my boys. They were perfectly happy in their mess. And as fast as I tried to clean things up, they would mess it back up behind me. Devastation and opposition. Pretty disheartening. But of course you laugh at my fate because it's really only devastation and opposition on the tiniest of scales, isn't it? You think about the devastation after an earthquake or after the tsunami. When we were up on holidays in Foster, a bloke gave a report on the tsunami in Indonesia. He'd just been back there helping them to rebuild. What a, what a massive task. What incredible devastation. And, and in some places like Aceh, the rebuilding was hindered because there was effectively a civil war. People were saying, no, you cannot rebuild these people's houses. Devastation and opposition. That is the kind of scene that faces Nehemiah. In the time of Nehemiah, Jerusalem was still devastated. As we saw back in the book of Ezra, Israel have come back to their land, that they're home from exile, and they've got some stuff happening in Jerusalem. They've rebuilt the temple, they've restarted the sacrificial system, Ezra has brought the law of God and they've started to implement it. They've uh, sent away their foreign wives. But still the city of Jerusalem is a complete mess. The walls are torn down, the gates are burned. And you may remember, we saw it again in our first reading today, that when they tried to fix it up, they were stopped. The local authorities complained to King Artaxerxes, said, this city is a rebellious city, you can't let them rebuild their walls. And Artaxerxes had given the order, stop work, unless I change my mind and give a new order. Just got a very brief summary there on your outline from Ezra 4.21. Artaxerxes said, Now issue an order to these men to stop work so that this city will not be rebuilt until I so order. To get the scene, Jerusalem is devastated and there's opposition to the rebuilding. The thing is, remember what we're dealing with here. We're dealing with God's special city of Jerusalem, the place where he dwells in a special way with his people in the temple. This, this city of Jerusalem, this promised land, is meant to be a picture of God's kingdom. It's meant to be a picture of God's people in his place, secure, secure under his blessing and his rule. 
And here in the time of Nehemiah, Israel are helpless. That the walls are broken down, there's no permanence, no security. God's people are at the whim of anyone who happens to want to just walk in and invade. That's the real issue here in Nehemiah. It's not just Jerusalem, it's God's kingdom. Israel might have come home, but the job isn't finished. God's kingdom is not yet permanently established. In Nehemiah chapter 1, we jump, we jump forward in time 13 years from where we were in the book of Ezra, and we meet the man Nehemiah. In fact, we get his diary. He opens up his diary in the month of Kislev and tells us about what was happening. He was in Persia. His brother, Hanani, comes up from Judah, and Nehemiah asks him how things are going. Nehemiah chapter 1 and verse 1. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, while I was in the citadel of Susa, Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men. And I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. The news isn't good. 150 years before, Babylon had smashed and burned Jerusalem and now their one attempt to get the walls back up again, it's been stymied. It's a mess. Verse 3, they said to me, Those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. Nehemiah is devastated. He mourns. He, He turns to God in prayer. First, he confesses the sin of Israel. He says, It's because we've disobeyed your law, including me, including my own family. Verse 4. When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. Then I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and obey his commands, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's house, have committed against you. We've acted very wickedly towards you. We've not obeyed the commands, decrees and laws you gave your servant Moses. Israel have disobeyed God's law. But now in his mind, Nehemiah goes back to God's law. To Deuteronomy chapter 30. In Deuteronomy chapter 30... God said that he would send Israel into exile if, he disobeyed their, if they disobeyed his law. And that, of course, is exactly what's happened. That's what God did. But it's not where Deuteronomy finishes. In that chapter, Deuteronomy 30, God makes some great promises. He says, if you'll return to me, I will bring you back. doesn't matter where you've been, I'll bring you back. And then he says, what I will do is I will change your hearts so that you will be able to love and obey me, that you'll be able to to obey me properly. And that is how, he says, Israel will be blessed. That is how Israel will, will get a permanent place in God's kingdom, because with their hearts changed, they will obey God and live. I've put, I think, quite a long passage there from Deuteronomy, the first six verses of Deuteronomy 30. When all these blessings and curses I have set before you come upon you and you take them to heart, wherever the Lord your God disperses you among the nations, and when you and your children return to the Lord your God and obey him with all your heart and with all your soul according to everything I command you today, then the Lord your God will restore your fortunes and have compassion on you and gather you again from all the nations where he scattered you. 
Even if you've been banished to the most distant land under the heavens, from there the Lord your God will gather you and bring you back. He'll bring you to the land that belonged to your fathers and you'll take possession of it. He'll make you more prosperous and numerous than your fathers. The Lord your God will circumcise your hearts and the hearts of your descendants so that you may love him with all your heart and with all your soul and live. There's God's promise. And look at how it's, it's right in Nehemiah's mind as he prays. Just look at the next section of his prayer and see how he picks up from Deuteronomy 30. summarizes it. Nehemiah chapter 1 verse 8. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses saying, If you are unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I'll gather them from there and bring them to the place I've chosen as a dwelling for my name. See how he's got Deuteronomy in mind there? It's actually very important. It's very important to understand the whole book of Nehemiah because it shows us the deeper issue in the book of Nehemiah. See, the presenting issue is the walls being broken down. But Jerusalem's lack of security is not just because the walls are broken down. Rebuilding the walls in Jerusalem is not what is going to permanently establish Israel in the land. There's this deeper issue. What is going to make Israel secure in God's kingdom is obedience. That's why they were sent out of the land, because they disobeyed God. Now the only thing that is going to keep them in God's kingdom is if they will obey God. There in verse 9, they need to return to God, obey his commands. And for that, we see in Deuteronomy chapter 30, they will need new hearts. You see the point? The Jews don't just need new walls. They need new hearts. It's the only way to be secure in God's place. We're going to need to keep that in mind as we work through this book of Nehemiah. But for now, Nehemiah acknowledges, God, you've kept your promise. You've brought Israel back. Verse 10. They, that is the people who are there in the land, they are your servants and your people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And so Nehemiah finally gets to his prayer, the thing that he's asking for. And you look at it and you go, what? But have a look. He asks God to give him success by giving him favor in the presence of a certain man. Verse 11. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Strange prayer. But we start to get an explanation in the next little line where Nehemiah tells us what he did for a living. He was the person, as we saw so vividly before, who, who gave the king his drinks. And so we get the clue that the, 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 the person in, in, in whose presence Nehemiah wants favour is the king, King Artaxerxes. Verse 11 again, I was cupbearer to the king. And then in chapter 2 we see how it all pans out. We see how the story works and how Nehemiah's prayer is answered. King Artaxerxes calls for some wine. Nehemiah brings it to him, but he's looking sad. And the king notices. Chapter 2 and verse 1. In the month of Nisan, in the 20th year of King Artaxerxes, when wine was brought for him, I took the wine and gave it to the king. I had not been sad in his presence before, so the king asked me, Why does your face look so sad when you are not ill? This can be nothing but sadness of heart. And Nehemiah is scared. 
the king has power to execute anyone who displeases him. You remember the story from uh, Esther, perhaps, that she says, if anybody even turns up in the presence of the king uninvited, they will be killed unless he gives them mercy and uh, extends the scepter to them. I think something we should uh, perhaps bring into my house. But uh, it's pretty terrifying to come before the emperor. Nehemiah is scared. And, uh, and remember, the king has already given, given instructions about the walls of Jerusalem. He's already said, no, you can't rebuild these walls. Nehemiah is scared, but, but he plucks up his courage. He raises the issue. He says, I'm sad because Jerusalem is in ruins. End of verse 2. I was very much afraid, but I said to the king, may the king live forever. Why should my face not look sad when the city where my fathers are buried lies in ruins and its gates have been destroyed by fire? The king asks him what he wants. He plucks up his courage again, shoots up another quick prayer to God and says, Can I go and rebuild? Verse 4. The king said to me, What is it you want? Then I prayed to the God of heaven and I answered the king, If it pleases the king and if your servant has found favor in his sight, let him send me to the city in Judah where my fathers are buried so that I can rebuild it. And God answers Nehemiah's prayer of chapter 1. He does give him favour in the presence of this man. The king agrees to send him. They just need to sort out how long he's going to be away for. Verse 6. Then the king, with the queen sitting beside him, asked me, How long will your journey take and when will you get back? It pleased the king to send me, so I set a time. And now he's on a roll. He doesn't stop Nehemiah. He asks for letters of safe passage. He asks for letters to get wood to rebuild the walls. And again, God gives him favor in the presence of the king. The king agrees. Verse 7. I also said to him, if it pleases the king, may I have letters to the governors of Trans-Euphrates so that they will provide me safe conduct until I arrive in Judah. And may I have a letter to Asaph, keeper of the king's forest, so he will give me timber to make beams for the gates of the citadel by the temple and for the city wall and for the residence I will occupy. And because the gracious hand of my God was upon me, the king granted my requests. And so the journey begins. Nehemiah heads off down to Jerusalem with an official envoy from King Artaxerxes, uh, unlike uh, Ezra. And uh, he, he comes down with his envoy and he, he hands the letters of safe conduct to the local officials in verse 9. So I went to the governors of Trans-Euphrates and gave them the king's letters. The king had also sent army officers and cavalry with me. And then we see the response. They're not exactly um, thrilled about it. Verse 10. When Sanballat the Horonite and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard about this, they were very much disturbed that someone had come to promote the welfare of the Israelites. So we've arrived here in Jerusalem. Now, first job is survey the situation, check out what's going on, see the extent of the damage. Of course, Nehemiah doesn't really know anybody yet. He doesn't know who he can trust. And uh, so what he does, he goes out in the dark, in the middle of the night, and he, and he checks the walls out to see the devastation. Verse 11. I went to Jerusalem, and after staying there three days, I set out during the night with a few men. I had not told anyone what my God had put in my heart to do for Jerusalem. There were no mounts with me except the one I was riding on. By night, I went out through the valley gate towards the jackal well and the dung gate, examining the walls of Jerusalem, which had been broken down, and its gates, which had been destroyed by fire. 
Then I moved on towards the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there wasn't even enough room for my mount to get through. So I went up the valley by night, examining the wall. Finally, I turned back, re-entered through the valley gate. The officials did not know where I had gone or what I was doing because as yet I had said nothing to the Jews or the priests or nobles or officials or any others who would be doing the work. He's checked out the situation. Now he reveals his plans. He tells, them, he tells the Jews that uh, Artaxerxes has changed his mind and it's time to get going. Rebuild the walls. And they say, you beauty, let's go. Verse 17. Then I said to them, you see the trouble we're in. Jerusalem lies in ruins and its gates have been burned with fire. Come on, let us rebuild the wall of Jerusalem and we'll no longer be in disgrace. I also told them about the gracious hand of my God upon me and what the king had said to me. They replied, let us start rebuilding. So they began this good work. That's not just devastation, it's opposition as well. The local officials still cause trouble. They don't want the walls rebuilt, and so they accuse them of rebelling against Artaxerxes. Verse 19. But when Sanballat the Horonite, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and Geshem the Arab heard about it, they mocked and ridiculed us. What is this you are doing, they asked. Are you rebelling against the king? And Nehemiah doesn't even bother telling them about the order from the king. He doesn't want to do them any favours at all. He says, you work that out for yourself. Um, He just says, God is with us, and you have no share in Jerusalem. Verse 20, I answered them by saying, the God of heaven will give us success. We, his servants, will start rebuilding. But as for you, you have no share in Jerusalem or any claim or historic right to it. It all sounds very modern, doesn't it? And so the scene is set. We're left on a knife edge. What's going to happen? Will the Jews be able to rebuild their wall? Will the local officials stop them again? What's Artaxerxes going to do? Is he going to stick by what he said to Nehemiah or is he going to go back on his word again? Now he realises that this is the same city that he's made orders about, this rebellious city. It's a massive task. The suspense is built. Jerusalem is devastated. The walls are broken. The gates are burned. And if they try to rebuild, they're going to be opposed at every step. What Israel needs, what Israel needs is a hero to come and rescue them and and sort the situation out. So is Nehemiah the man? He's pretty impressive from what we've seen so far. So is Nehemiah the man to complete the exile? Is he the man to secure Jerusalem, to, to give Israel a safe and permanent home? Well, stay tuned for the next exciting episode of Nehemiah. But also don't forget the deeper issue. The issue raised in Deuteronomy 30 and uh, there in Nehemiah's prayer. Remember, it's not just new walls we're looking for here. Israel are going to be insecure as long as they are disobedient to God's law. They don't just need new walls, they need new hearts. And that's the question we're going to need to be asking ourselves over and over again. Is Nehemiah the man for that? Is Nehemiah the man who can change the hearts of God's people so so God's kingdom can be permanently established? I don't want to wreck the story for you, but sadly Nehemiah is not the man. He might get the walls built, I won't tell you, you can read ahead, but he can't change anyone's heart. 
He can't get people to obey God's law. He can't establish forgiveness and permanently establish God's kingdom. For that we'll need another man. A man who will obey God's law. A man who will, who will offer a sacrifice for our failure to obey God's law. A man who will rise again and pour out God's Holy Spirit so we can have new hearts. So we can begin to serve God here on earth. So, so we will serve God with pleasure, transformed by the Spirit in glory forever. Nehemiah is not the man to permanently establish God's kingdom. For that we're going to need Jesus. But more of that as we move through Nehemiah. Having said all that, I just want to conclude by looking at a couple of the positive things that we can learn from Nehemiah. Because he's actually a bit of a hero. And there's stacks to learn from him. And, and there's a sense in which we Christians are, are a little bit in the same situation as Nehemiah. We're, we're not yet in God's permanent kingdom. And Jesus has done all it takes for us to be in God's permanent kingdom, but, w- but we're not there yet, are we? And so we can face similar situations to Nehemiah. We can face situations of devastation and opposition, even here in Chatswood. Our Christian lives can be devastated by sin and failure. By sickness, by tragedy, we can feel like we have no permanent place in God's kingdom. Because how could God accept someone like me? Or in our churches. Sometimes it all seems to be such a mess. Relationships, they fall apart, we're dry, we're stagnant, we're going nowhere. It looks like it's going to be impossible to rebuild. Certainly we still face opposition, don't we? Or we face even exact situations like Nehemiah when he had to speak to the king. There he was, he's scared, but he knows he has to speak up. You ever been in a situation like that? Maybe someone's criticising Christians at work or, or someone says to you, you're not a Christian, are you? Why, why would you be into that sort of rubbish? You know you should speak up, but you're scared. On this side of heaven we do face situations a bit like Nehemiah's. And I reckon there are three good things. Three quick, quick things that we can learn from Nehemiah, the things that are worth remembering. First, did you notice how he's steeped in the word of God? You can see it from his prayer. Do you see it in your prayers? In his prayer you can see that he's meditated on God's word, he's read God's word, he's reflected on its implications for his own life and circumstances. It would help us to follow Nehemiah's example, wouldn't it? If we faced each day having reflected on God's word, having meditated on it, it would give us good focus. Second, did you notice how Nehemiah is a man of prayer? He sets aside time to pray. He prays thoughtfully and seriously in the light of God's word and also on the spot he prays. Bang, I'm in trouble, help! He says to God when he faces a tough situation, shoots up a prayer. I remember back in the days when I had a real job, having a Having a decent prayer time in the morning before work, it made a difference. It gave me far more opportunities to speak about Jesus. It helped me be bold. It, it helped me to keep godliness on the agenda. It meant I wasn't a Christian at home but then forgot all about it at work. It just gave me that agenda. And remember the arrow prayer concept. Like Nehemiah, God is always with us. And so, like Nehemiah, we can always shoot up a quick prayer to God. Third, did you see Nehemiah's bravery and action? In the face of difficulties, in the face of opposition, he doesn't give up. He doesn't whinge about how tough things are. 
He doesn't go on and on about how someone else ought to fix things up down in Jerusalem. He doesn't follow the North Shore option of there's a problem, I'll pay somebody to fix it. He sizes up the situation. And with God's word in mind, he prayerfully and bravely acts. He does what he can to further God's kingdom. I don't know exactly what your situation of devastation or opposition is, but sometimes we just need to take our courage in our hands and and act. Be brave. Don't give up. Don't whinge about how someone else ought to fix the problem. Like Nehemiah, there are times where we need to be brave and just tackle it one step at a time. Okay. Nehemiah is not the man to overcome all the obstacles and permanently establish God's kingdom. That's going to take Jesus. But we can learn stuff from him as we travel towards God's permanent kingdom. Like Nehemiah, we should be steeped in God's word. We should be faithful in prayer. And we need to do what we can to bravely further God's kingdom. Let's pray now. Almighty God, our loving Heavenly Father, we thank and praise you for your mercy to us in the Lord Jesus Christ. We thank and praise you that he has done for us what we could not do for ourselves. He's perfectly obeyed your law. He's died on the cross as the sacrifice for us so we can be forgiven, so we can receive your Holy Spirit and get the new hearts that Israel so desperately needed. Our Father, do please work in us by your Spirit that we may be students of your word, that we may be brave, that we may be prayerful. Please establish us firmly in your kingdom as we continue to trust in our only Saviour, our only hope, the Lord Jesus Christ. For we ask it in his name. Amen.